You may be seated. Let's pray for the uh, reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Our good and kind Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is uh, light and life for us. Uh, We thank You that it gives us a path uh, to take and to follow and that we have direction uh, for this life. Father, I pray that you would use, uh, Lord, even my weak words uh, to expound upon this text, that we would grow in greater love of you, that we would understand the gospel more clearly, that you would reveal our sin, but that you would not leave us there, that you would wipe away the shame, and that you would restore us uh, in the goodness of the gospel, the forgiveness, and the restoration we have in Jesus. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, Before we read, let me set the context for our story because there's a lot going on in Judges. So, after the death of Abimelech, uh, Israel had yet again rebelled against God, but this time God allowed Israel to be sold into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. So, the Ammonites are going to be a key player today. Um, They were, were oppressed. The Israelites were oppressed for 18 years. They cry out again to God, and the story we get today is the story of how the Israelites are delivered in the land of Gilead, particularly. So there's really one main character to keep in mind as we read our text, uh, and that character is Jephthah. Jephthah. No one wanted Jephthah because although his father was named Gilead, also of the Gileadites, both a father's name and a place, Um, No one wanted uh, Jephthah until they needed a leader to save them from the Ammonites. So they go back and they get Jephthah, and that's where we begin our reading today in verse 4 of chapter 11. And then I will summarize verses 12 to 28, and we'll read the rest. So our reading begins in verse 4, chapter 11 of Judges. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader. That way we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. In verses 12 to 28, there's an exchange of letters between the king of the Ammonites and Jephthah, basically bargaining for their position. And the result of those letters is that the king of the Ammonites wants to go to war. The diplomacy did not work. So that brings us to verse 29. 
And then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. They then seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah Gileadite died and was buried in the city of Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is uh, good to be with everyone this evening. Um, and it feels like this sermon series has been a spiral downwards. 
which is right because we're preaching from the book of Judges, and the book of Judges is an ever-increasing spiral downwards. Uh, That being said, let me begin this evening with a question for you. What's a moment in your life you found yourself spiraling down? What's a moment in your life you found yourself spiraling down? Was it when you got the call that someone you loved was ill? Was it a missed opportunity? Maybe a job you didn't receive, maybe a dream left unfulfilled? Was it a marital argument? Was it the feeling of loneliness that you can't get out of? Was it rejection by a brother or a family member? In today's text, we have a really crazy story of a man who made presumptions, a man who made assumptions, a man who killed his own brothers in concern for his own glory, and a father who sacrificed his own child. It's a horrible, spiraling story, but there is uh, one common thread running throughout this story, and that is this. Jephthah acted alone. Jephthah acted alone. Not once did Jephthah consult God. Not once did he remember God's word. God was not the Lord of Jephthah. God was a means to an end for Jephthah. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? If he is, then he ought to inform every small and large decision in our lives. Oftentimes when we're scared, when the world is pressing in, when our desires are threatened, Matt preached about that this morning, when we're insulted, when we, uh, in these moments we are prone to take life into our own hands and to remove Jesus as Lord of our life. So here's what we're going to learn from the narrative today, and these are my three points. Without Jesus as Lord we will presume upon God's desires, we will assume God's judgments, and they will ultimately lead in us destroying each other. So those are my three points. Let's begin with presuming upon God's desires. So our story opens in verse 4, and it opens in a panic. The Ammonites made war against Israel, and that would be scary. And even more scary is the fact that they have no leader to wage this war. So what do the elders of Gilead do? They go and they find a leader. They find Jephthah. Now, remember, they had previously kicked Jephthah out of Gilead, and now they want him back. Why do they want him back? They want him back because it's a panic move. They are looking to the house of Gilead, and all they have is Jephthah, the illegitimate son of Gilead. Uh, Their language they use doesn't even make sense, and Jephthah, he understands this. Even Jephthah asks the question, why me, in verse 7? And their answer is, we need someone to fight for us and to be the head of Gilead. So I hope you can feel how piecemeal this conversation is. This is not how you want a leader to be chosen, and this is not even how other judges in the book of Judges have been raised up. I want you to remember um, earlier, almost all the judges 
have the words written in the Bible and the Lord raised up, right? So and so, this judge and that judge, but not Jephthah, not here. The story of Jephthah begins with presumptions. The elders of Gilead presume God wants Jephthah to lead them. Jephthah presumes he can lead them. And then verse 9, Jephthah presumes God is blessing him if he's given victory in battle. All of this is done without actually consulting God or his word. Do you see the problem? Now, we have to ask what is causing this presumption in the Gileadites, and there are two things. There is circumstance and there is cultural pressure. So, let's look at circumstance first. So, they're under attack. Again, I would imagine that would be scary, but their first instinct is not to look to God for protection. Now, that is scary, but it's also relatable, isn't it? When I was 10 years old, I was playing with my brother and my younger brother in the backyard, and we had this big red bouncing ball, like the kind that had the handle on it that you would sit on. And uh, it was huge. It was like half the size of my body. And we were being destructive children, and we were hitting things with a metal baseball bat that we should not hit. And I told Andrew to pitch this big red bouncy ball at me, and I swung with my baseball bat, and the bat immediately came back and hit me in the mouth, and my two front teeth broke in half uh, from that baseball bat, and I immediately went to the dentist, and I'm glad Aaron Bliss is here tonight. So I want you to fast forward to last week. So my tooth has a crown on it, and it starts hurting. Now, I had been to the dentist uh, before, um, but I have not been to the dentist since before the pandemic. (laughs) And I'm dreading what they're going to say about this tooth. So I go to the dentist, and they tell me, I need uh, a root canal and two crowns. So my circumstance made me anxious. Uh, I immediately thought, how do I pay for this? Is it going to hurt? Well, I have to take time off. Uh, My first instinct was not, okay, Jesus, how are you going to provide for me for this thing? I got there later, but I was convicted that something relatively small caused me to try to immediately solve this problem on my own. Now, I gave you a relatively benign story, um, but where in your life are circumstances dictating your actions? Where in your life are circumstances dictating your actions? Where do you find yourself reacting rather than going first to the Lord in prayer? Now, I'm not saying there aren't times for immediate reaction. There are, but most of the time, are you driven by circumstance or are you driven by Jesus as the Lord of your life? The second we're given is cultural pressure. There was a pagan belief that if you won a battle, then those gods or God must be approving of your action and decisions. So this is not true uh, in Jephthah's case. While ultimately God does allow Jephthah to win the battle, it's not until verse 29 that we see the Spirit of God come upon Jephthah. Verse 11, we see that Jephthah has some orientation to God, but he's not quite there in seeking God and his will and his desire for Gilead. Later, Jephthah does the unthinkable 
and he sacrifices his own daughter as a burnt offering. And had Jephthah looked at Deuteronomy 12.31, he would have learned that God expressly forbids human sacrifice. God hates human sacrifice. So what is happening with Jephthah? Again, in pagan culture, it would have been assumed that you pay off a god with human sacrifice. Jephthah is not making God his Lord. He is reading God through the lens of his culture and the cultural pressure. So I'll commit to you that we do this too. We put conditions and ultimatums on God based on cultural influences and expectations of how humans will work, not on how God works. While God cares about our culture, we have to be like bloodhounds sniffing out those places in our lives where we allow the culture to influence our view of God. So who is God? Well, first, biblically, because we look at the Bible to know who God is, you cannot buy God. You can't buy Him. You have nothing to offer Him that He does not already have except one thing, that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I need to move on, but let me ask you these questions. In what ways do you put ultimatums on God? In what ways do you allow culture to influence your decisions of who God is and His will for your life? So let me encourage you with this. In circumstance or in cultural pressure, Jesus is Lord of your life. You can trust Him where and how He leads you. So let me move on to this tragic story of Jephthah's daughter. And this is where Jephthah makes assumptions of God's judgments. This is our second point. So I believe the main lesson we learn from Jephthah sacrificing his daughter is this. To assume God's judgment will inevitably lead to death. To assume God's judgment will inevitably lead to death. Let's flesh this out. Verse 29, what does it mean that God's spirit was upon Jephthah? At this point in the story, the Ammonites have waged war, and it is now that God chooses to give victory into the hands of the Gileadites, but that's all that it means. There are many examples in Scripture of God's spirit coming upon someone who then does not follow in God's path. Uh, A great example we can think of is Saul, right, who did great evil, Um, although he originally had God's spirit, 1 Samuel 16. So then verse 30, Jephthah makes a vow. His vow is that if God gives him victory over the Ammonites, the first thing that comes out of his house, he will offer as a burnt offering. So we have two questions. Why does he make this vow? And why his house? So let's talk about the house first. So some people have translated his house to mean like a barn where livestock would come out. Uh, But in Hebrew, this is undoubtedly a house. It's not a barn, and he was expecting a person to come out. Jephthah was expecting to sacrifice a human to God. So let me read uh, what God says about human sacrifice in Deuteronomy 12.31. This is God's view of human sacrifice. 
You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they, that is pagans, have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. What's the one time we almost see human sacrifice in the Bible? It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And what happens? In the place of a human, God sends a ram. Had Jephthah consulted God's word, he would have never made this vow. This answers the second question, why did he make this vow? Because he thought he could buy off God. He thought he knew what God wanted, and he was deeply wrong. So two points on this. Uh, one point's for unbelievers and one point's for believers. So if you're here today and you're a skeptic of Christianity, uh, you may have an idea of who you think God is and what He wants for your life. Maybe you view God as some angry, judgmental old man. Maybe you view Him through the lens of legalistic, stuffy Christianity. Maybe you view Him from the lens of another religion. So here's my caution and encouragement to you. I want you to see the cost of assuming that you know who God is. It ends in the death of what you love most. When we make God into our image, rather than allowing the Bible to shape our view of God, it will end in the death of what we love most. But here's the encouragement. When we allow the Word of God to shape our view of God, it will end in life. When we allow the Word of God to shape our view of God, it will end in life. So let me give you a small taste, if you're new to Christianity, if you haven't read the Bible, of who is God. Psalm 103, 8 to 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always tried, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Does this sound stuffy to you? I encourage you to embrace the God of the Bible. Second, and this is to believers in Jesus, we too can make assumptions of God's judgments in our lives. The great sin of Jephthah was not a vow he should not have made, though that definitely was a sin. The great sin of Jephthah was not repenting of the vow he should not have made. When you sin, there are two options. You pay the cost of your sin or God pays the cost of your sin. Jephthah made an assumption that because he made a vow, God would hold it over his head and demand the death of his daughter. That assumption of God's judgment ended in death. Had Jephthah known the God of the Bible, he would have known this, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. God is a gracious God who, if we go to Him, 
offers mercy. But if we do not go, there is only our payment left for our sins, and the cost is more than we can bear. If you're a Christian, let me ask you this. When you sin, whatever that sin may be, and the shame builds up and the fear of the consequences set in, where do you go? Where do you go? Do you dig your heels in like Jephthah? Do you try to make payment for your sin, so maybe with lots of apologies or doing nice things? Do you try to balance the cosmic scales? If you do this, then you are assuming God's judgment. You are trying to pay off God. The gospel, which is that Christ Jesus paid for your sins, is most beautiful when we are at the bottom of the pit. It is one thing, for example, to forgive a white lie, but it is another for Jesus to forgive the deepest and the darkest sins of your heart. Do you know that God longs to show you mercy? Do you know he longs to take away your shame? The lesson of Jephthah is that he should have gone to God in repentance for his vow. Instead, he pays the cost. Christian, go to Jesus and you will find abundant forgiveness. He loves you. He longs to show you mercy. Now, sadly, the story gets worse (laughs) and we see the result of not going to God for forgiveness and this ends not just in the depth of Jephthah's daughter, but in the death of 42,000 brothers. So this is our last point. All of Jephthah's choices lead to destroying each other. Our last chapter here reveals the results of Jephthah's decision-making apart from God. The Ephraimites are jealous, covetous of the glory of the Gileadites in victory. They threaten to burn Jephthah's house over with fire. That's verse 1. And then the conversation devolves into uh, name-calling. Ephraim calls the Gileadites fugitives of Ephraim. Apparently, uh, this name-calling was the last straw, and so civil war breaks out uh, between the brothers of Israel. Now, let me explain why this language of fugitives is so significant. In Numbers 26, verse 29, we read that Gilead belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. Gilead belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. So there were 12 tribes in Israel. So remember, Jacob had 12 sons, but two of his sons were not tribes, Levites and Joseph. Joseph had two sons whose names were Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, here's the key. Gilead was of Manasseh, and Ephraim and Manasseh were brothers. So, Ephraim and Gilead were brothers, brothers who murdered each other. To call Gilead a fugitive was like calling them illegitimate people of Manasseh. But they were legitimate. It was like a brother disowning you. Now, there's a parallel story here, isn't there? Who were the first brothers to fight? Cain and Abel. And what did they fight over? That Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable than Cain's. Therefore, Cain killed Abel. One brother killed one brother. Now, Gilead kills 42,000 
brothers. So this is obviously not the way it's supposed to be. This is not how brothers are supposed to act. This does, however, show how the trespass has increased, how far Israel has fallen. This shows us also where presumption and assumption of God's will can lead us, not just to the death of a daughter, but the death of 42,000 brothers. So I have two younger brothers, and when I was little, uh, my mom, uh, she, she decided we would fight a lot, and she decided to scare us by telling us a story that she read in the newspaper of a brother who pushed uh, his sibling into a glass coffee table. And when the coffee table broke, that brother had such bad injuries that he died. Um, Now, this terrified me as a child. So in one way, it kind of worked. Uh, My mom was making the point, don't fight. But let me tell you something. There is no other fighting that compares to the fighting between brothers. We are prone to fight And while my mom's warning was a good warning, it was only half right. The message is not just don't fight. The message is protect. I make my daughter and my son repeat these words to each other. My job is to protect my sister. My job is to protect my brother. My job is to keep them safe. Now, here's the connection. The Bible says Jesus is your older brother and that Jesus has come to protect you. In Hebrews 12, it says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In Romans 8.29, it says that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is the brother who protects. Jesus is the brother who saves. Jesus is the brother who keeps you safe when all you want to do is be angry and fight. Not only this, but Jesus gives up his own life so that his brothers may keep their lives. He is everything that Jephthah is not. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because his blood brings redemption and life. Where Cain brought death and destruction. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the best application I can give you of this passage is the unity of the brotherhood with Jesus and the unity of our brotherhood with each other. And of course, I'm including brothers and sisters in Christ in these statements. This word calls us to unity and protection as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we live in a particularly divisive time, don't we? People who claim the name of Jesus are divided today. Now, we cannot control what is out there, but we can control our own lives. And let me ask you this, where have you been divisive? Where have you been divisive with other Christians? The gospel calls you to unity. As Jesus has given himself for your protection, so you give yourself for the protection and the unity of your brothers. If you have been unkind in a debate online, go and ask for forgiveness. 
If there's a relationship left broken, pray and seek the healing of that relationship. The watching world will know we are Christians by our love, right? Our brotherly love. I'll end with this. You are going to make mistakes. You're going to fight. You're going to mess up. You're going to say things that are unkind. You're going to have disagreements as brothers do. But praise be to God that there is forgiveness and redemption in Christ Jesus. Praise God that in my life, many of you know I've had to ask for forgiveness before, that when I do, you've forgiven me. Lastly, praise God that Jesus, as our older brother, has made a way to save us from our sin. Would you go to him and go to each other in the unity and the peace of the gospel? Let's pray.